Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Driving to the Basket. I am Mike. I am here with Tommy, and this is going to be the free agency review episode. This is actually our second take. Uh, we recorded this for the first time on, I believe, Saturday, but neither of us are really happy with the episodes. So we're doing it again. So we're just going to talk about really what happened. It was a very, very active offseason. Excuse me, very active uh, offseason well, with, with regards to the draft uh, and free agency. As of the recording of this episode, training camp has already begun. Preseason begins on the 11th of December. Uh, for those of you who aren't familiar with the schedule, the Pistons are playing two games against the Knicks and two games against the Washington Wizards. Uh, it uh, will end on the 19th, and that's followed by the regular season beginning on the 22nd of December. I still don't, don't think that uh, the schedule has been released yet, the full schedule. Uh, we do know, however, that, you know, in a true outrage of outrages, the Pistons are not playing on Christmas Day. You know, boo-hoo. Uh, <laughs> so, anyway, just a couple of further notes before we really get started. Uh, number one, the Pistons, well, we're going in, into the offseason right now. and It's not the offseason. We're going into uh, preseason. We're in training camp right now. Until the day before the regular season begins, the Pistons can carry up to 20 standard contracts. When the season begins, then they need to be down to 15 standard contracts plus uh, two two-way contracts. They're right now at 16 guaranteed NBA contracts. And so somebody will have to go uh, before the beginning of the season. We'll talk about that a bit later. Uh, another thing, and this could wind up being important for the Pistons, given the preponderance of young players on the roster and also the fact that quite a few veterans joined the team over the course of free agency, uh, the G League season is in doubt. Of course, we're still dealing with coronavirus, and that's likely to be the case for, uh, unfortunately, nobody likes to hear this. Uh, I certainly don't, but we're not likely to be out of the woods until the spring, and that'll be four months into the NBA season. Or four, yeah, roughly. Uh, you know, who knows what'll happen. Either way, uh, the G League, there's been talk about a bubble in Atlanta. Uh, it's really unsure. Uh, I think it's somewhat unclear if all the teams will be participating. Either way, not having a G League season would be pretty unfortunate for the Pistons because it's going to be tough to find everybody minutes. You, you'd really, I think in most situations, prefer to allow players to play 20, 30 minutes in the G League rather than you know, 10, 5, or in some cases this happens, zero minutes uh, with, uh, with the NBA team. So moving on to the meat of it, the overall off-season review. Now, uh, this was... <laughs> to say the least, pretty eventful for the Pistons. Uh, I think I can safely say both for Tommy and I that it did not go as we expected. However, we have different opinions on, you know, on, on how it went overall. So for my part, not a big fan. I don't think it was terrible, but you don't want it to be said about, about free agency that you didn't have a terrible free agency period. Of course, I said off-season review. We already talked about the draft in the last episode. So for the purpose of that, just talking about, about free agency. So I was, if not confused, just really disappointed by uh, by the way that, that Troy Weaver conducted himself in his first free agency. I, I, I think it's clear at this point, he's made very clear what his objectives were. But the way I see it, the idea of a rebuild, uh, the best way to rebuild is is going to be in, in the vast majority of cases to develop talents while maintaining maximum flexibility in, in terms of the salary cap and, and in terms of your future contracts. 
and maximizing the impact of that flexibility. And that flexibility can be capitalized upon toward, for example, taking on bad contracts for cap space. Or uh, maybe you find, you know, and that, that can be aided by, you know, if you have a bunch of one-year contracts in your team, which, which are, you know, the standard fare for a rebuilding team, uh, that's helpful as well. You have the salary to send over uh, in the course of taking on that bad contract. And uh, whatever. Basically, very nice, as we saw over the summer, uh, excuse me, over the draft. It's, I'm still having trouble thinking about this. This is the first off NBA offseason uh, in which the offseason was actually in the fall. So we saw in the draft that Troy Weaver got himself a first round pick and a second round pick by taking unwanted contracts into salary cap space. And that's really nice to have. So I think, I think what I would like to see the Pistons do is sign some kind of some veterans to one year contracts because you don't want some veterans on the team in addition to just Rose and Griffin. And then just go from there. You give them the young guys as much playing time as, as, as they merit and then the next year, you've got a bunch of money off the books and in the offseason from those one-year deals. And then you decide where, you know, where to go from there. Uh, basically, it just gives you options and it gives you the best chance at accumulating further assets. And if, who knows, maybe things go unexpectedly well. And then with those contracts off the books, then you're free to pivot into free agency and do something. Either way, instead, the Pistons just nuked all the flexibility they had. And, you know, they... They spent all the cap space they had. Uh, they gave out two, three-year contracts uh, for, for fairly big money in aggregate. They also put barriers in front of the young players. I mean, I, I think they're going to have trouble getting enough minutes to go around. I mean, of course, that assumes that all the players are, are, are ready for minutes. Uh, the latter, of course, as I said, if there's no G League season, then it's not like, okay, well, the guys will just play in the G League and develop there because there's G League season, then they can't. And, you know, there's, there's stuff beyond that, like, you know, stretching a contract or multiple contracts, as it were, in this offseason. It's just completely and utterly bizarre for a team in, in the first season of a rebuild, first offseason of a rebuild. You know, you don't, it's not a huge deal having $4 million in dead space, but you really don't want it. Again, less flexibility. The new players have the potential to add wins, and you don't want that. So you don't even want to take that chance for a team that, that really is going to be looking to build through the draft. And uh, I'm currently living in fear of a, of a situation in which everything somehow comes together for the Pistons and they become a 30-win team. That would be horrible, uh, you know, for the sake of actually building a you know potential contender. And uh, yeah, that, that's that's just how I feel about the offseason. I don't think it was done to, in the best possible way. I think that Weaver wanted to build a culture and didn't want the team to be absolutely terrible. But I think it didn't need to be done this way. Now, Tommy, I know you think a little bit differently than I, uh, actually quite a bit differently about about the way things went. Right. Yeah, so in, in previous years when we've talked about like what we wanted to see uh, the Pistons do, a uh, common thing, of course, we, we both wanted rebuilds, and uh, we both kind of envisioned it the same way. It was like maximum tanking, maximum minutes for the young guys, sign veterans to one-year deals. And then – you look at what Weaver did. So I'm, I'm kind of thinking about these moves as a whole, and the idea here seems pretty clear. Um, they're trying to go for a reestablishing a defensive culture, a culture of hard work and uh, accountability between the guys. And they signed a lot of guys who they probably didn't deserve the contracts and the numbers they got, uh, especially in the bigger pickups. But everybody that they signed, you know, they had this reputation of uh, working hard or 
playing defense and uh, they're good locker room guys with the exception of maybe one or two of the cheaper guys. And uh, especially watching Weaver's media availability, the common theme is always they want to change the culture and they know that they paid above market value for some of these guys. But it it seems like that was their ultimate goal. It was like their first goal. Uh, And I agree, you know, adding dead money for several seasons is irritating, but they seem to make all these moves with specific reasons in mind. And uh, you couldn't say that about some of the uh, pickups of the past where it was they're just trying to sign the best roster possible. So uh, I'm happy about that, at least. And I know in the past I've talked about, like, especially when Casey or other people have talked about, you know, we want to establish a winning culture. I was always, I was never a big fan of that because it always felt like an excuse for the win now moves that were kind of the direct cause of our mediocrity. But here it seems like they're kind of trying to lay a new, uh, a new base. We were talked about emulating the identities of hard work and defensive effort of the, you know, the best championship piston teams of the past. And I know we've talked about how, uh, you can't win championships on defense anymore, but I think there are going to be more moves down the line. Maybe if they do end up tanking properly or they get good position in the lottery, uh, there are great offensive talents in the upcoming drafts. You add those at that point. Um, and one of the things I kind of like is, you know, a lot of people talk about uh, what Miami's done over the past few years. And you know that I'm a big fan of their offense, but there's more to it than that, you know. They've killed some of their flexibility with questionable moves and trading away first rounders and stuff like that. But they've managed to get they managed to get to the finals last year, in part certainly because of their uh, their big market appeal and they got some great uh, free agents. But uh, the Miami Heat culture is a real thing, and uh, combined with excellent coaching from Spolstra, things like conditioning and the the effort that they put in. It's one of the reasons that they've achieved what they have achieved. And uh, I think that's kind of what Weaver's trying to go for here. So all in that sense, all this seems like a, ge- a genuine effort to really change that culture. And uh, it, it seems shaky to me because it's kind of like they're trying to accomplish two things at once. You know, they're not trying to sign the best players available and uh, win as many games as possible. But a lot of these moves, you know, you, you could say that like these, some of these guys are going to add wins. You don't want to add so many wins that really hurt your draft position. And even then, you know, your primary objective should still be, you know, lose as many games as possible so that even if you don't win the lottery, you don't get pushed down as far. So there's risk there, but uh, it seems very, very important to Weaver, you know, that they change this culture and, uh, that's that's kind of what they've done. They've brought in all these guys, even the guys who they picked up in the draft. They're all guys who uh, kind of work hard, defend hard, and uh, very coachable guys. So in that sense, I kind of understand what they're going for here. Their primary objective hasn't been to maintain flexibility or even lose as many games as possible. It's change the culture, reset the culture. And uh, it sounds like such a cliche, you know. As many, There are so many teams who would love to just change their culture and uh, they talk about that, but this seems like a real like plan to actually do it. So that's kind of the way, I mean, you could say that I've kind of rationalized that, but I think it's just the way I've interpreted these moves. I'd say it's kind of looking on the bright side. <laughs> I mean, yeah, uh, yeah I, it's, it's like I said, I, I don't think the, I don't think free agency was terrible. I just don't think it was good. I don't think it was done in the optimal fashion. I don't think it was a disaster. Yeah. Yeah, I just don't, I really don't, I just don't like the way, I, I don't like the strategy. Yeah, culture's all well and good, and sure, 
you know, you always, it's, it's great to have the young guys brought up in a good culture, a hardworking culture. Of course, these guys, the young guys were drafted in part based on their, you know, based on their own, I don't want to say cultural impact personalities, put it this way. They are all hardworking team first guys. You know, they great work ethic, uh, you know, just very mature mentality and so on and so forth. I, I don't know about Saban Lee, actually. I, I can tell you about him, but definitely Stewart, Bay, and Hayes all fit that profile. I almost feel like Stewart, who's mature beyond his years and just has a great mindset, but is almost drafted in part just to be the team dad down the line. <laughs> so, I mean, it, it comes down to these players. I think I said this in the last episode, who I'm sure I will like. And well, I like them on the court is a different story, particularly I'm, I'm saying particularly when it comes to Stewart, I, I think Hazel may be a little bit rusty to begin with and maybe be a little bit raw. It might take him some time or it might not. And I think Bay will translate pretty well. Uh, I, I don't think he'll be really a high ceiling player, but I, I think his game will translate well. But when it comes to Stewart, it's will it translate well or not? That's hard to say. We went over what we, what we each think he'll have to do to become a good NBA player. Nonetheless, yeah, culture's well and good. I think it could have been done a lot less expensively and in a way that could have maintained flexibility to a much greater extent. Like you can go out and, and have those guys, you know, have, have some different, decent, you know, decent uh, veteran presences who will come to your team on either one year deals or one year deals with a team option, one year deals with uh, non-guaranteed second year salary. That's what you're typically looking at through a rebuild. Sure. You might sign some guys to longer term contracts. If you think they're really worth being, uh, you know, keeping around after rebuild, like guys who are taking a flyer on them. I just I think it could have it could have been gone about in a better way and and yeah it's like you said you don't want to add wins and and sure there's been lottery reform so it's not necessary to be the worst possible team but there still is a benefit to being the worst possible team. Uh, to, I mean, not I'm not saying okay let's go out there and just field a team that's going to be terrible because there are downsides to that. I, I don't necessarily agree with the philosophy that it's going to ruin your young players. I think the Sixers are proof that you can come up in a terrible team and still become a pretty good player, but. Like if you are the worst team in the league, you are guaranteed to pick, for example, in the top five. I mean, obviously you don't want to be fifth. It happens. You got less than 50-50 shot at it. But uh, if you are the second worst team, you're guaranteed to pick in the top six. And, you know, you're, it's like 80% that you'll pick in the top five. It is about 50% you pick in the top four and so on and so forth. Like when the Pistons picked seventh this last year, uh, well, seventh was their most likely outcome. So, are they yeah, they picked seventh, right? Jeez, it's yes. draft is so recently that I can't believe I'm forgetting about it. So much stuff has happened since then. So there are still benefits to being one of those worst teams, and you also you want to be one of the you really don't ideally don't want to drop past number four if you're really going for that number one overall pick. And there will be more guys than you know. There at least it's a deep draft coming up, 2021. That's why you saw hardly anybody trade away a 2021 pick. Only the Timberwolves a team of questionable wisdom and they're really going to be focused this year on not screwing it up. So they have to look and say, Oh goodness gracious, we traded away that pick and we're still awful. And, and uh, yeah, boo, you know, that would, that would be just, that would be a difficult pill to swallow. Yeah. So I think, yeah, I, I'm just not a fan of the way we went about it. I mean, I think yeah, that's I mean, Grant. No, yeah, I understand just, what you're saying. It's just, I understand like it's, it seems like a really dicey thing to try and maintain the balance uh, between, you know, developing these young guys and making sure that you don't hurt your lottery odds too much, but also trying to be competitive with they They never say they're trying to win. They always say they're trying to be competitive and uh, it, it'll be, 
I really doubt that they can hold that mentality over a losing effort over a 72 game season. So in that sense, like that's why it's really questionable and people have looked at it like, what are you doing? Because they've made moves that you would want to make if you were trying to win. And they've made these, some of these moves where it's like, well, you want to lose out. So in that sense, yeah, I agree with you. It's not, it's like they're trying to do two things at once. And usually when you do that, you can't do either of them really, really well. So, I don't know. It's it's riskier, but I understand what they're going for. Yeah, that was that was one of the disappointing things for me. Is I looked at it on on the first night of free agency, and I'm I'm like, oh my goodness! So the Pistons trying to have one foot in rebuilding and one foot in trying to compete now, which is of course what they have done since uh, 2000. And well, I mean, they were competing in the beginning of 2008 2009 season, but. The Pistons until last year had spent every single year trying to win now, trying to rebuild on the fly, quote unquote, which is generally going to be a disastrous philosophy. At, at the very least, it's it, it's much less likely to succeed than a true rebuild. And yeah, there are no guarantees in any rebuild, but we're talking about probabilities here. So yeah, just the possibilities of possibility of more wins just scares me. And I, I know, you know, you could say, well, if Blake Griffin, for example, plays well, oh, then you trade him. But it's like the mechanics of that are not quite so easy. I think that a lot has been, I think that a lot has been made of what Zach Lowe said, that I think there's going to be a market for Griffin. Number one, it was an, I think not an, I know. And number two, it was, I don't think it's going to be a great market. You know, they're just going to be some, uh, some teams that are interested in, Oh, what can you do to help us win? But the mechanics of trading a guy who's making his salary are difficult. I mean, there are just not a lot of teams you can look at out there. And also Griffin is not a plug and play player. We've talked about this before. He is a very fit dependent player. And if he has to share usage with another star player, he's going to be significantly worse because the only, the, the only way in which he can really truly effectively play is if the team plays around him. And also if he has the ball in his hands as much as humanly possible, plus just as a power forward who can only play one position, can't flex up the center, can't flex down to another, uh, you know, to, to small forward and uh, just, you know, he spends a lot of his time and basically locks his team into an archaic form of offense. So I think there will probably be options if he plays well, but it, it could he could very well play pretty well throughout the course of the season. And the Pistons just can't swing a trade because that's difficult. And, and then I'm sure in that case, in the off season, some, you know, there'll be teams that are, that'll will strike out on, on a max free agents, uh, maybe more max free agents or maybe less depending on players take options or not, or excuse me, uh, opt out or not. I guess that meant the same thing. And and that might be your best chance to move Griffin, but it, he could play very well and you're not able to move him this season. And that adds wins and maybe everything comes together and that adds wins. But I'd, I'd like to go back to, uh, you, you know, you mentioned that, yeah, you, you want to establish culture and still, you know, be able to play your young guys a lot. They might not be able to play their young guys a lot. You know, they're, they're at the very least, there are not going to be minutes to go around for all of them. If you want to give minutes to Seku and you want to give minutes to Bay, then, and you're playing behind Griffin and Grant, both of whom will probably be playing at least 32 minutes a night. Where's Josh Jackson, for example, going to find his minutes. It'd be a little tough for him. And suddenly the Pistons have like five or six shooting guards. None of them are particularly good. But, you know, are, are those guys, you know, are the young guys in that crew going to get their minutes? I don't think we need to worry about Killian Hayes at all, obviously. I think they're going to give him as much run as he can. I'm not 
thrilled about him playing next to Blake Griffin because I don't think that'll be good for his. I don't think that will be the ideal situation for his development playing next to somebody as ball dominant as Griffin. And it's like I've said before, Griffin, if you take him off the ball, he becomes an exceptionally highly paid spot up shooter. He's not bad at it, but that's not really what you want. That the Pistons care, but that's just not the way he plays. He is not a good off ball mover, and he's no longer an effective role man, and so on and so forth. If you take him off the ball, then whatever. If he's willing to play that role, great. Nobody cares anymore if the Pistons are going to win. So I will say regardless of the offseason, I am excited to see a Pistons team that is actually going to be a team, you know, like a team full of players who are working hard, who are playing conscientiously and are actually looking at, you know, it's it's like, I don't remember who said this. Uh, I think I think it was Darren McCarty actually about Steve Eiserman who said, you know, these great players, I'm paraphrasing, these great players you're looking at, you know, really filling up the score sheet, but the only statistic Steve Eiserman cared about was wins. And I think the Pistons have a lot of players like that on the roster now. The guys, all they care about is is the wins, like hopefully not this upcoming season, but all they care about is playing in a way that's going to best befit their team. And after the horrible dark era that was watching Drummond go out and, and loaf around the court and try to be the offensive superstar he will never be, and... You know, in the first two years of Reggie Jackson, the the unrepentant egomaniac, and I'm sure I'm forgetting a whole bunch of really, really irritating players. I mean, Josh Let's Smith, obviously. Out, <laughs> so I am looking forward to that. So it's not like I feel terrible and, and all is lost. I just, I really disapprove of the way Weaver went about this. And I, I do think it is, you know, him, you know, kind of trying to put one foot over the line. I think... You know, if if you're looking at, you know, this is an actual metaphor, then I think he, <laughs> you know, his, I don't know, if you want to look at two legs, then his groin is more over the line in the rebuild direction. But I really don't like that, that, you know, that one foot is even slightly into the, into the other area. Cause I just, I, I think that is lessened the, I think that is decreased the effectiveness of this rebuild. Right. All right. Anything to add before we move on to the players themselves? Yeah. Um, I mean, looking at, uh, I was watching some of the media availability and, you know, sometimes it's lip service, but Casey did talk about, um, you know, he talked to Blake Griffin about, you know, taking on a role as more of a mentor. Blake talked about that as well. And the other thing that Casey said, I don't have the direct quote in front of me, but he said he was going to try to force feed some of these young guys. Uh, that's probably talking about Killian Hayes in particular, but I don't think he's going to put the development of the young guys on the back burner. I think him and Weaver are kind of on the same page in terms of like what they want to get done. And I'm sure Weaver recognizes, especially since he's like such a big fan of the draft and young guys, it's not like Stan Van Gundy who's like the draft picks are an afterthought. It's Weaver really likes to, uh, he's talked about, he loves the draft. So I'm sure that Weaver talked to Casey and he's like, look, we need to focus on the development of these young guys. And especially like Blake Griffin's comments, you know, it still remains to be seen whether this actually comes into fruition. You know, you have to maintain the egos of some of these, you know, big name guys, especially how Jeremy Grant said he came here for a bigger role uh, that he probably wasn't going to get in Denver. You know, how do you manage that? Plus the development of Sekou and uh, Sadiq Bey, you know, both whom, you know, Griffin talked about how Bey already has such a complete game and he's like very good for his age. And then Sekou, who probably has one of the higher ceilings on the team. You know, managing all that's going to be tough. And, you know, if if you can trade Griffin, maybe that get, becomes a lot easier. But you know, it all remains to be seen. It's going to be really hard to juggle all that. Uh, it's, it goes back to, like, how difficult they've kind of made getting everything done. 
uh, is going to be. But it, it's something that I, I have faith because I know we talked about uh, how Casey really seems to favor his vets. Maybe there's some indication that he's going to move away from that in favor of the long-term plans for this team. And that's something I hope that we see. Yeah, I one thing you've you've um, I'm sure I've said this on here before that Casey shows his veterans all due deference, and that was something that's always really concerned me with respect to his efficacy as a as a coach in a rebuild. Absolutely. Yeah, and and it was the case in Toronto that really full emphasis was put by Casey on the development of that young crew, Fred Van Vliet, uh, Norman Powell, and DeLon Wright, Soji Aninobi, uh, Jakob Pertl, and, and Pascal Siakam. Largely after Masai got rid of all the veterans, because Casey just had a, I know for Raptors fans, an extremely irritating history of just prioritizing veterans who are often worse than the younger players <laughs> ahead of whom he was playing, ahead of whom he was playing them. That said, we saw with the case of Brown that, that Casey is more than willing to give minutes to a rookie who will compete hard on defense and just play hard in general. Of course, for Brown, it was kind of a matter of, you know, happy circumstances for him, not for the team as a the team as a whole, the team at large. But there was a lot of serendipity there for Brown because there was just nobody. He got in there basically. Kyrie Thomas got injured early. Kyrie Thomas, who would have been ahead probably because he could shoot, and the Pistons didn't really have anybody good for the position at the time. I mean, you weren't going to start Langston Galloway. It just kind of ended up that way for Brown. And, you know, the more I talk about it, the more I'm thinking, well, this was partially just because that roster was an absolute horrible train wreck. <laughs> but we know that Casey values guys like that. So it's just, I always shudder a little bit, uh, you know, when I hear things like, you know, do anything while we compete. <laughs> I don't like to hear that. I don't know if it's just lip service. I don't know if it just means we're going to try not to be horrible, but... It, I think it's just it's just the experience of having uh, the experience with the Pistons over the past you know however many years when they were actually serious about that like oh we're going to try to rebuild on the fly and you know improve the team and, and make the playoffs sort of obviously that's not the situation now but you know just for the sake of whatever I <laughs> I just I just wish things had gone a, a little bit differently and, and just the focus was entirely on development and I, I, I just think that culture can be built in ways that were not this. So uh, let's move on to the player profiles. First will be the Pistons marquee free agent signing. That is Jeremy Grant, 20 million per year for three years. He was, for those of you who noticed that he actually came to Detroit by way of sign and trade, that was just a salary cap maneuver to earn the Nuggets a salary cap exception. It did not, excuse me, a a, salary cap exception, a trade exception. I'm not going to go into discussing that because you can get a whatever. It, it can it could take a little while, and that's just not what we're talking about right now. Uh, the NBA CBA, uh, the collective bargaining agreement, is really complicated. It makes the NHL's uh, a collective bargaining agreement look like a ch- like a children's novel. So, uh, in any event, so it earns the Nuggets a trade exception. What the Pistons got out of it beyond goodwill is unclear. They got the rights to an extremely unremarkable point guard who was drafted five years ago by the Nuggets and will almost certainly never play in the NBA in part because he's just 
by all indications, nowhere near good enough. Whatever. So Grant is 26. He's what I'd call a three and D and finish player. You know, we all know what three and D means. Guy who can stretch the, you know, can well, stretch the floor is barely an applicable term given, <laughs> given that it's almost unacceptable not to be able to shoot in the NBA at, at any position these days. But so he's a guy who can shoot threes at a high percentage off catch and shoots. Uh, he can play very good defense. He, he was an excellent defender in the playoffs last year against some good players. And he's very good at finishing off cuts and passes through open lanes and whatnot. What he is not is a good creator. So he came to Detroit over returning to Denver at the same salary. And by the way, I really, 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 really strongly doubt that the Nuggets offered him $20 million right off the bat. No, that was it was surprising he got that salary from the Pistons. Or he was offered that by anybody. I'm almost certain that Denver came in and offered to match it because it made more sense for them to pay uh, to overpay for Jeremy Grant than to lose him for nothing. Because as as a team that's already over the cap is trying to compete right now, it made it was going to be difficult for them to replace him, and it just made more sense to overpay him to keep him. He ultimately went to Detroit instead because he uh, for the promise of a larger offensive role. Now, this is when it comes in that he's actually, at least at this point in his career, has been really bad at creating for himself. Like last season, he, in the first place, he was unassisted on only 20% of his makes at the rim and 10% of his threes. He shot a very good 62% effective field goal percentage on assisted shots when he tried to create for himself. That was 44%, very bad. So he's coming to Detroit. He's going to get his shot uh, at a larger offensive role. It could end up being ugly. But Grant's basically just betting on himself. If I'm sure he would enjoy having an expanded role either way, he was going to be a uh, basically an offensive role player with the Nuggets because they have other guys who are better scorers. So on Detroit's, you know, maybe he'll just enjoy it. But also, if he succeeds and and develops further, then he's looking at a, at a bigger payday at, at age 29, which is really going to be is, is generally players. I mean, that's their best last chance to cash in on a huge contract unless you're LeBron James and you <laughs> functionally never get older. <laughs> so, but if it doesn't work out, then he's still a, a pretty darn good three and D player and he's going to get a contract anyway. So it's just, again, uh, Weaver really liked him for, again, for culture reasons, Weaver said he could have played on on either of those Pistons championship teams. He's just a real hardworking guy who really competes on defense and so on and so forth. I don't see how that really made it worthwhile for the Pistons to, you know, effectively spend, you know, counting the Deadman buyout, like $23 million a year on him. I don't think that's really worthwhile. It, it, I don't care that he's overpaid. It's more just that that cap space is gone. And again, Godad wins. Serves no immediate purpose. Takes minutes away from younger players. So not a huge fan, especially if you're looking at a guy who is going to be given more offensive responsibility. You know, that's offensive creation and just uh, the offensive share is a zero-sum game. I mean, it's, it's, if you give it to somebody, you're taking it away from somebody else. Griffin's probably already going to be taking a fair share of it. I don't want that taken away from the younger players, particularly Killian Hayes. And, and what Jeremy Grant's going to want to be doing more of is creating off the dribble. So either way, projects to be the team starting small forward if, you know, I'm sure most of us are hoping for this. If Blake Griffin gets moved, very likely he moves power forward. So those are my thoughts on Jeremy Grant. What do you think, Tommy? Yeah, I'm with you. Um, this is this is the scariest signing for me because it, it's 
out of all the ones that we made, he probably adds the most wins. And uh, I think we could have gone on without him. I feel like just from what I've seen with Sadiq Bey and, you know, the comments that other players have made about him, uh, I think it would have been fine to start him straight off. But, you know, maybe he's, like you said, like a trade piece down the line. It's another good target for Killian on the perimeter. Maybe that helps, uh, you know, space the floor and, and uh, it'll make it, things easier for him. But, yeah, this is a signing I could have gone without. You know, it really hurts our flexibility, like you mentioned, and uh, it's it, it makes this whole, you know, trying to lose while remaining competitive uh, a lot harder. So I'm, I'm not a huge fan of this signing. Maybe they really believe in his ability to, uh, you know, contribute to changing the, changing the culture of this team. I know Weaver has a history with him uh, going back, like, way past uh, this summer. So maybe that's a factor as well. But, yeah, no, this is a, this is a confusing pickup from the uh, rebuild, rebuild standpoint. Yeah, maybe you can trade him in a couple of years. I don't know. It kind of depends on how he plays. kind of depends on where the salary cap sits. I mean, $23 million is a not insignificant amount of money. When you add together, uh, I mean, well, $20 million, that's 20, did I say 23? Whatever, 23 with the buyout, that's not going to apply in. Or with the, with the stretch uh, of Dwayne Dedman, that's not going to apply, obviously, in a trade. But when you look at, like, Grant and Plumley collectively got this first year salary of, a, you know, of a, of a, it's not rookie maximum, basically the contract that the likes of Donovan Mitchell or who else uh, is, is going to get after the expiration of their rookie deals. You know, that's a lot of money. I mean, again, the Pistons don't really need the space. It's just to illustrate how much space that is that they could have used on acquiring more means for getting young players on draft picks specifically. So it was just puzzling signing to me too. I just don't really see what purpose he serves for the Pistons in a rebuild. I think he serves no purpose and it could be counterproductive. I, I think that's, again, this is a case where sure culture guy, cool. You don't have to pay $20 million for culture guy. You don't even have to pay $8 million for a culture guy. You know, we'll talk about that with Plumlee. But you definitely don't need to spend 20. I mean, that's the opportunity cost for picking up Grant at that salary was very significant. Again, loss of flexibility, loss of minutes to the younger players, and, and, and the possibility for worse draft position. And what are the Pistons getting in return? It's like, yeah, you have another target on the perimeter. You can pay a lot less money for that. It's just like with Plumlee, like, yeah, you've got a pick and roll guy for for you know, I won't stray too much into him because we're going to talk about him soon, but you get a pick and roll guy for Hayes. Cool. You could have picked up Damian Jones, who's an excellent pick and roll guy for one quarter of the cost. So yeah, it boils down to sure. Build culture or, or get guys who do this or that, but you'd never needed to spend this much money on them. So not a fan. And maybe I'll be proven wrong, <laughs> proven wrong by, by Grant's play. The trouble is, that if he's the guy Weaver thinks he is, who can really develop much further, then he's going to be adding wins. And again, you really don't want to be a twenty to thirty, like a like a you know like a thirty win team this year. You really don't. It's ideal not even to be anywhere near a thirty win team next season because you want your shot at a money Bates. So, this was just the signing that I think, aside from the possibility of trading for assets down the road, really just has uh, no real positives at all. For me, yep. it's not like, like I absolutely hate it. It's just like I don't see any positives, and I see a host of potential negatives. Yep. So, all right, moving on from Grant, go on to Plumlee, the other, I suppose, significant signing of the offseason. 
I know you've got a lot to say about him, Tommy. Why don't you take it away? Yeah, so Plumlee's a 30-year-old traditional center, and the reaction to this, you know, we all saw it. It was it was mostly confusion. Uh, we talked about guys you didn't have to pay this much for. Plumlee fits that mold. But Weaver has talked a lot about he was brought, how he was brought in specifically for the culture and leadership. And uh, I was watching his uh, media day av- avail- availability earlier, and um, he talked about – he actually said, you know, I'm excited to start this rebuild and contribute – and I think that was the first time I heard somebody actually say rebuild. So it's it's pretty clear to me that, you know, Weaver brought him in for that specific purpose. And he talked about to him about like, you know, this is what we want you to provide. And with that in mind, I guess I kind of maybe I, I still don't like the number, but I kind of understand the idea behind giving him a three year fully guaranteed twenty five million dollar contract. Weaver really wants him to buy in. We talked about how ideally you sign veterans to these one one-year deals but then maybe they're just looking to the horizon they're like well I gotta get my touches so that I can you know secure a place in the league for myself next year Uh, that's not going to be a concern for Plumlee and I honestly you you know we I think it was announced that there's a 10% trade kicker the amount plus that trade kicker plus you know this role that he seems to be taking on as you know a leader and a culture guy I think Weaver wants him for the full three years and I wouldn't be surprised that at the end of that we brought him on again, you know, extended him or signed him to another deal because it, it seems like you really want him for uh, his leadership. As far as the player that he is, offensively, he's very much a system player. You know, he kind of relies on effort, timing, and good positioning to score. He's not a high flyer or particularly explosive, but he's efficient as a role man, which is it, it's probably a significant part of his appeal on the court. You know, playing with Killian, who's a pick-and-roll point guard, you know, there's there's the fit there, but he doesn't have much to offer outside the paint and as he lacks outside shooting. That's a real concern to me. You know, I talked a lot about how I really wanted us to bring back Christian Wood. And a huge part of that was, you know, the potential fit that he had as a, as a floor spacing five. Plumlee's not going to bring that. It's going to make things probably a lot harder for Hayes. You know, we saw this a little bit with even Griffin and Drummond. You know, Griffin was at his best when he was kind of posting his way into the paint. And with Drummond only able to exist there, you know, it makes things a lot harder. If you have that guy who can retreat to the perimeter, maybe that thing makes things a lot easier for Hayes, and maybe that really helps his development. So that's one of the reasons I really don't like that. I don't think, uh, especially at the number that we gave up Christian Wood for, I, I feel like we could have matched that and it would have made sense. But again, this is a culture move, and it's a pretty massive overpay. But I think it all boils down to, Weaver wants Plumlee to be the guy who, you know, takes these rookies under his wing and uh, really establishes, uh, you know, that hardworking culture. Because by all by all accounts, Plumlee's a pretty likable guy and he's uh, respected in the locker room. So that that's that's that. But and you see this a little bit on on the court. His effort with his movement, passing, and patience are nice. Uh, he plays smart, but his relative lack of athleticism really hurts his production. On one hand, it's going to help us lose games, but like I mentioned, it's 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 confusing that Weaver would opt for a guy who doesn't have much floor, floor spacing ability or a great catch radius above the rim. Uh, it's going to make things that much harder for uh, Killian. Defense is a similar story. High effort, active hands. He doesn't have the lateral mobility to switch on to most perimeter-oriented players, so that's another weakness. I think somebody did ask him, uh, Weaver that is, about, you know, why why go with uh, two traditional centers as like the bulk of your 
free agent center pickups. And he talked about, well, I think these guys can exist in the NBA uh, right now. So that's a, a bit of a concern for me. But at the same time, we talked about how maybe they brought in Isaiah Stewart and picked him up where he was picked up because maybe they believe he can be a, a spacing yeah. five. That's just a bizarre statement that uh, that he believes these centers, you know, can still play in the NBA. Well, technically, they can still play, but there's a there is an inherent cost to putting him on the floor. Yep, it's trouble. I mean, it's and, and then you have to yeah. factor the you have to factor in the overpay and then the three million and dead cap to stretch Deadman. There's there's a lot of, there's a lack of value on the court, but it, it just comes down to the culture thing, and then. Plumley, he he plays hard on the court. He's just kind of limited by his athleticism. He runs the floor hard. His fundamentals are solid. He cuts hard to the rim. Uh, he focuses on setting good screens. And again, great locker room guy. Decent passer too. Uh, right, exactly. And I think that he can be something of a mentor for Stewart. Uh, just continuing to instill that mentality of doing your job, which uh, we talked about. He's he's a very mature young guy. So I don't think that's a huge concern. I don't think for him. that's. I don't think he needs to be taught that, and other guys can teach right. him that. Yeah, and then maybe Plumlee can teach Stewart how to pass because I think I don't know if it was us talking about it or if if Stewart uh, talked about it maybe in like like an interview. But Stewart needs to learn how to pass out of the paint, and Plumlee is a solid passer, and he can make a variety of reads. Uh, it seems clear that Weaver wants Plumlee to stay and uh, maybe help him reach that potential, but. I don't know. I, I don't hate the the rationale behind bringing him in. And I guess if you want to lose games, signing a traditional center who's not going to space the floor, I mean, maybe that makes some sense, but I would have rather had him as a backup maybe. And maybe that's his role down the line. But I, I understand what the idea behind this pickup was. What do you think? It's the same thing as, as I said earlier. I think you can pay considerably less for a culture guy. Now, Plumlee on the court, not a very good player. I mean, he got, as far as getting paid, he got paid by the Nuggets. You know, he, he got about $40 million from the Nuggets. So that, that's a pretty good paycheck. I, I remember, <laughs> I, was, I was just thinking, all right, I, I, won't, I don't want to mention what, what people said on Twitter because honestly, I don't, I don't care. But one of them said, you know, how, how does... Mason Plumlee keep getting paid, <laughs> and, and and I just got a chuckle out of that. And I think I think it's a it's a good question. Uh, I think you could get a culture guy. Well, I, I don't think he has anything to offer as a mentor, uh, not at all. I mean, he's a good culture guy, but the idea in drafting, for example, Stewart and and in and Weaver's philosophy of drafting the person is to get guys who already have that mentality. I don't think it's a mentality you can teach either. I, I don't think. <laughs> I mean, obviously Drummond is an extreme example. But it's like they brought in Rashid to try to help him in, in this was 2013, 2014. And I think we can confidently say that Drummond did not absorb anything of Sheed's mentality. Anything. Or anything if, that Sheed could have offered, period. So I, I, don't, I don't think it's a matter of mentorship. I think if you want to teach somebody how to pass out of the post, you have coaches who can do that. Griffin could do that. I mean, he's a much better passer than Plumlee is ever likely to be. Also... We talk about ever likely to be Plumlee almost certainly is what he is. He's 30 years old, probably not going to learn to shoot. I did have kind of a visceral, uh, you know, just a, a reaction of visceral irritation at having to watch the Pistons field another traditional center. That much is true. Offense is, of course, very important. You know, it's the even most important thing in, in, in the NBA. And fielding a center who can't shoot carries with it an inherent opportunity cost. It's going to make your offense worse in, in the vast majority of situations. You know, even with really good traditional centers, I mean, Gobert, 
You put him on the floor. He's an, an excellent interior scorer, largely when other people help him. But the fact that he can't shoot, it means instant disadvantage on offense. So uh, there's also the matter that you want to bring these young guys up in, in a modern offense, and you're not really going to get that with a traditional center. We saw that with Christian Wood last year, just how different it looks when you have five guys who can space the four. It's a big deal. You have much more in the way of options. I'd like to see the young guys be able to do that. And I would also just like to watch an offense like that. So Deadman, for example, up, up until just, just bizarre regression last year, was actually a pretty good modern center, a guy who could score pretty well within the arc, who could shoot threes and defend the rim. And he was just a respectable defender. I'd almost rather have kept him. And if you, yeah, he's not good on the pick and roll, but it's just Plumley doesn't have much to offer on the court. And if you sign a guy like that for one year, or even two years, particularly the lower salary, it's like whatever. But you gave him $25 million over the course of three years. And again, there's an opportunity cost to handing out to that contract, less cap space, less flexibility. It's only $8 million, but, you know, that's that's money. I mean, you can get you can get maybe a, a late first or certainly a, a second-round pick or two by by taking on a bad contract at, 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 at that, of that size. But you look at him on the court. I mean, he's a guy, sure, he competes hard. And he's a fairly good passer and he's a pretty good role man. And that's where his, his strengths end. He has almost no agency as a scorer. He, he basically needs to have his offense created for him. He's not a particularly, even around the basket, he's not going to take the ball and be likely to do anything with it. He can't shoot. He's not very athletic. Yeah. He's not going to play above the rim particularly well on defense. He can't switch. So like, there's a reason that these lumbering traditional centers are now almost entirely out of the league. <laughs> it's like, it's, it's, in part because they can't shoot, which is a, which is painful on that end. But also the NBA meta is just all about getting advantageous matchups. So you run a, a guy who can't switch. Uh, you just, you run a pick, you get your guard switched onto him and then your guard blows past him. And that's the really very, very, very good first step in breaking down the defense. So I just, I, I don't see really any upside of this. Again, it's not a huge deal. It's only $8 million and, and the Pistons didn't really, Again, it, it's more, it's, for me, the less, it's less of an issue that they overpaid Plumlee than the fact that they spent this cap space in that manner at all. But I just I don't really see any positives, and I don't want him here in, in two years. I don't want him to be here for his third season because that means he's taking up a roster space, and he's probably taking up, he's taking up minutes, he's taking up cap space, and I just I don't see any reason why that's, it's just the culture isn't worth that amount of money. Amount of money. I think you could have gotten a guy to help with culture for considerably less than that. Like you said, crap fit with Griffin too. I don't think it's a big deal, but it's ugly. <laughs> like Griffin's best fit at center is a guy who can space the floor. Yeah. It's the reason Griffin. That's not the worst thing. Yeah. If you want to lose games, it's not the worst thing, but it, uh, the best thing I can say about the Plumlee signing is that it wasn't bad. That is the best thing. I, not that it wasn't bad. It wasn't awful. It would have been awful if it were at twice the salary. In this case, I think it's just bad. I don't really know how it's going to go for Isaiah Stewart, you know, if he's going to be good enough for, for minutes right away. You got Okafor as well, whatever for him. I don't think he's really much of a consideration. But there's just nothing I like about the signing. Like nothing. So I think it was a bad idea. It that What probably upset me the most when it was announced was that it undermined a bit of my confidence in Weaver. Cause it's like, what on earth are you doing on day one of free agency and in season off season one of a rebuild? Why are you signing a traditional center to a contract, a multi-year kind three-year contract at a salary he doesn't deserve? 
So I, I don't really see any positives to it. Again, culture, yay. You know, that's helpful. But 25 million in three years? No thanks. So yeah, that's how I feel about it. I just, I really, I really don't like it at all. I don't think it's a disaster. I just really, really don't like it at all. As far as the notion of trading him down the line, traditional centers are not valuable in the trade market. They are not valuable in the free agent market either, uh, you know, barring a, a few exceptions. The free agent uh, traditional centers are just not valuable in the NBA now. It's just so nice to have a guy who can, who can stretch the floor on offense. Again, it's just your average traditional center is just by virtue of being unable to shoot and unable to create offense going to be an offensive negative. So good luck if you want to trade a guy who, you know, counting his trade kicker in, in year three will cost more than $9 million against the cap when you see teams having trouble dumping traditional centers who are paid 50 60% that much. So, and Plumlee just doesn't have a very valuable skill set at all. He just doesn't. Uh, on the open market, yeah, his skill set is completely unremarkable. So, anything else to add about Plumlee? Uh, no, I think that's covered it. All right, moving on to DeLon Wright's brought over a way of trade with uh, the Thunder for Trevor Ariza, who is now officially the most traded player in the history of the NBA. In any event, not much to say about Wright. He's a pretty unremarkable player. Solid, I suppose, but unremarkable. Uh, he's close to 29 years old. Decent overall combo guard. Probably a little bit overpaid, but who cares, I guess. He's paid less than Ariza. He's not particularly good at anything. He's a decent shooter on low volume, a three-point shooter on low volume. He scores fairly well in the restricted area, but he's not good at attacking the basket himself. He is a decent defender, but nothing special. He's a fairly good passer, and he's, he's safe with it. He doesn't turn over the ball a lot. He's one of Casey's young guys in Toronto. So, you know, he's probably Rose Insurance. And I, I suspect that Rose, I think the Pistons would trade him now if they could, because I just don't think he serves any further purpose on the team. I think that while the old regime really liked him just for his presence, I don't think Weaver really shares that. I don't think they, I don't think Weaver is really a huge fan of him. Not, not that I don't think Weaver likes him. This is all just speculation, but like the old regime, for example, at the trade deadline, they set the price of a lottery pick, which was very, very unlikely to happen. It was along the mental lines of we're willing to, to trade him, but we're also perfectly fine keeping him. So we're just going to set a high price, but Rose, I don't think is really long for this team. If the Pistons could trade him because he's just the sort of really high usage uh, bench flamethrower point guard, who is just going to take usage and minutes away from younger players and force the offense to play around him. So he's also, you can't count on his health. He was, if he, I think it's easy to forget that because the, because the season just ended for the Pistons shortly afterward, he was going to be out for the rest of the season. He was on course to play another 50 game campaign. Anyway, I digress. Wright is just, he's solid, but unremarkable. And where will we play right now? Hard to say. Maybe he'll start a shooting guard. I don't know. He's pretty much just there. I don't have anything further to say about him. He, uh, he's not bad, but he's not good, at least thus far in his career. You got any thoughts about Mr. DeLon Wright? <laughs> no, I think you covered it. The, the, exactly what you said. I, the first thing I thought was Rose insurance, just in case he goes down. So 
you have a backup point guard there. Yeah. So, all right, moving on to uh, what I believe is the only other really interesting signing of this offseason. That is Josh Jackson. I know you've done quite a bit of research on him. So why don't you tell us what you know? Yeah, so initially I wasn't a fan of this pickup, and I'm still not a huge fan of it now. But it was interesting because it didn't fit what we've come to expect from Weaver. You know, the indications have always been that Troy likes these high-effort, high-character guys, and Jackson is neither of those. He's had serious issues off the court and on the court. Plays a very casual, almost, I mean, maybe this is an overstatement, but almost lackadaisical, you know, just doesn't play with effort. And then you look at his stats, and there isn't much there either. You know, After he got traded to Memphis last year, he spent 26 games in the G League before getting called back up. And eventually he earned a spot in the Grizzlies rotation. And his averages last year, they, they aren't very good either. Uh, he finished the season shooting 44% on field goals, just under 32% from three, and averaged nine points off the bench. Defensively, I mean, yeah, defensively he's capable. He can move really well, uh, and he showed good lateral movement lateral mobility excuse me coming into the league uh, he's very athletic you know the tools are there but it's always come down to the effort with him uh, and he figures maybe to be like the off the bench uh two behind I, I think it's gonna be speed but yeah the real intrigue with me or for for me with this signing is that josh jackson could be a good indicator of whether weaver's culture moves will work uh, most of the remaining guys are known for being like these high effort guys who play hard and if we can see, if we see that they can influence Jackson, like maybe if we see that he starts to run the floor harder, uh, attack the rim more, make use of his natural talent, he's probably one of the highest potential guys on the roster right now. Uh, he had a short stretch of games on the tail end of his Grizzlies tenure where he was scoring well and uh, really driving hard uh, to the rim. And that's what I'll be looking to see if he brings this year. It's a low-risk pickup. He was brought in, I think, with the room exception. And you understand the you know, how all that works well, far better than I do. But it's definitely going to be interesting to, to see if we can make anything of him. I think if he doesn't make progress within a year, you know, he probably fades into the background. But it, it really is interesting that they brought in this guy who bucks the trend of um, guys who just, you know, don't fit Weaver's mold. And I think it's really intriguing. You know, maybe this is our first shot at seeing if the uh, the culture thing is for real. Yeah, I don't really have much to add to what you've already said. I think that Jackson is exactly the sort of signing that rebuilding teams should make. A guy with potential upside who can be had at a cheap price, a reclamation project. So a guy who, if he works out, you know, fantastic. If not, really all you've lost is a pretty small amount of cap space. This is exactly the sort of thing you want to be using your open cap space on as a rebuilding team. So, yeah, we hope he gets it together. If so, great. It'd be a nice story, too. He's a hometown boy. And if he doesn't, then he's off the team at the end of the year and the Pistons just eat the dead cap or they kick him over to another team for really nothing but salary relief. Either way, it's it's really a no-downside move. Okay, so Tommy actually had to depart unexpectedly. I'm just going to finish up the last segment of this on my own. There's really not much else to talk about, more just the the minor signings and acquisitions the Pistons made over the course of, of uh, well, the offseason. So first is Jaleel Okafor. Just like Jackson, he is a former high draft pick. He was number three in 2015. Jackson was number four in 2017. Okafor will be about 25 at the start of the season. A pretty good interior scorer. Also a turnover-prone ball stopper who can't pass, can't shoot, and plays bad defense. Two years on a minimum deal. 
Uh, unclear what the guarantees are in the second year. Uh, just like Jackson, he's a reclamation project, and and you know maybe he plays him his way into becoming a decent player. In which case, either he's trade bait or he stays in the team. Well, obviously, those are the two options. If not, then you know the Pistons, if they want to cut ties early, can just dump him and just you know eat what's a very small cap hit next year. I don't really like this one quite as much as I like the Jackson signing. Okafor is number one, at least how he is right now, is is a traditional center, and just his upside is considerably lower. And I just I I just don't really see that there's a ton of upside there. It's not a big deal though. You know this this is just oh it's really costing the Pistons is a roster spot and a small amount of cap space. Of course that's cap space. Well actually no, uh, I was going to say it's cap space that could have been used to avoid uh, having to stretch Smith, but actually I'm pretty sure this was signed with the minimum exception. Uh, after the Pistons already at the cap, so yeah, this is this is really just it, it's for all intents and purposes a no cost signing for the Pistons. Uh, I just I don't really like Okafor all that much. I've never really liked his game. I don't really think he has much to offer to the Pistons, even if he improves as a player. And you know, goodness forbid, maybe he'll end up ahead of Stewart. Though I'd like to think that the two of them will get an equal shot at those minutes behind Mason Plumley. Goodness, just talking about that center rotation makes me feel bad because that's three traditional centers but anyway it obviously it's not a big deal that it's three traditional centers and that the pistons aren't trying to win it's just you know ugly so i don't really feel much either way about this signing i mean i, I really could have done without it I, I, you know but it, it's just not a big deal so we'll see rodney magruder uh, he came over in the Canard trade as salary filler. He's being paid $5 million against the cap this year and a fully non-guaranteed $5 million next year. Uh, 29 years, years old, unreliable, streaky shooter. Provides nothing else on offense outside of unreliable, streaky three-point shooting. And he's a bad defender. Uh, given that the Pistons are at 16 contracts right now, I would say he is certainly the likeliest to be waived. But we'll see. Uh, David Servetus, who recently signed a three-year contract, two years guaranteed. So uh, he is the ultimate product of the uh, John Luer trade. The John Luer, uh well, it wasn't a cap dump. It was a cap dump from the Bucks onto the Pistons, which netted the Pistons. Tony Snell, who was thought at the time to be, okay, well, you know, we have a, a half-decent small forward, and that didn't turn out to be the case, but... And the number 30 pick. So Snell was bad. And we'll, we'll just trace the ultimate, <laughs> you know, the ultimate branch of this of this trade. Or, excuse me, the ultimate outcome of this trade, just for fun. So Snell was bad. I mean, despite shooting 40% from three, he was just, he was uh, a complete. The guy has an unbelievable propensity for disappearance on offense. I mean, it's it's been the case throughout his entire NBA career. And it definitely happened with the Pistons. He was bad for Detroit last year. You know, that ultimately didn't end up mattering. But, uh, you know, he was. And the number 30 pick, the Pistons traded that away for uh, three, or excuse me, for uh, for cash and for second-round picks. They, I believe, expended three of those second-round picks on moving up to take Servetus, which left them with Portland's 2021 second-round pick. They used some of that cash to buy Jordan Bone from the Sixers. Bone, of course, is gone. And then they used that 2021 second-round pick 
as part of the trade uh, for Kennard when they sent over four picks, four second round picks. Three of those were Detroit's 24, 2024 through 2026, and the fourth was Portland's 2021. So uh, basically, where we're left is uh, you dump Lure, uh, or, you know, whatever. Milwaukee gets to some cap relief, which they got from stretching and waving Lure. Uh, ironic, you know, of course. <laughs> we're talking plenty about stretching and waving here. So ultimately what the Pistons got was David Servetus and uh, $2.9 million per year over the next five years of Dwayne Dedman's stretched contract, of course, and Snell was traded to Atlanta for Dedman, who was subsequently stretched and waived. Uh, for those who, who aren't aware of why uh, that happens, so when you're waving and stretching, the remaining cap hit is stretched across double the remaining years of the contract plus one. So Snell, if the Pistons had stretched him, they would have had to apply his hit across the course of three years equally. Now, Deadman had one year at $13 million and then an additional year in which I believe only there's only a small amount guaranteed. I don't remember the exact number. But because there was a second year to begin with for the, for the purposes of the stretch, uh, excuse me, the stretch provision, they were able to stretch that $13 million plus, you know, whatever small amount for the second year over the course of five seasons instead of three. So it just allowed them more cap space by way of stretching a contract than, than the Pistons would have had if they had just, uh, if they had done that with Snell instead. So in any event, where that trade left the Pistons was with $2.9 million of dead cap in each of the next five seasons and David Servetus. So what is Servetus? Uh, I would say probably his best case scenario is somewhere around what we're seeing from Svi Mikhailuk, which is for the most part a guy who can shoot threes at a high percentage both from the spot up and firing them immediately after navigating around a screen receiving a handoff. So, you know, if you can do that, great. You know, if, if you are able to do that, then you will have a job in the NBA that is a very marketable skill, just the skill to run around screens and shoot right away. You know, that, that's a very difficult play to defend, and it's, it's just it's, it's a very useful skill to have. You're probably not going to get paid a ton just for having that skill, but, you know, you'll always have utility. And if that's what he turns out to be, then... You know, the Pistons, you know, great. You can always use more guys like that. If you don't want him, you can pass him on for a very modest return or as part of a larger trade. So, you know, there, there are always the questions, of course, is, you know, if, does he really have much to offer at the NBA level? Do the Pistons primarily select him as, you know, sort of a <laughs> sort of slightly like, corrupt move because he is... Uh, represented by the son of Arn Tellum. Arn Tellum is the, is the vice chairman of the Pistons. You know, was that the reason why he was selected? Who knows? I, I don't. I think it's kind of a moot point at, at this stage. It would be annoying to find out that that really gave him a leg up. You know, that the Pistons went to that to, to that effort to, to select him when he really wasn't all that great. That would actually be really irritating to find out. I, I don't know if we would ever find that out. But either way, he's here, and hopefully, he's got something to offer. Moving on to Musa. I still can't pronounce his first name properly. Whatever the case, 22 years old, about $2 million against the cap this year, team option next year. He's got raw talent, you know, some raw talent, rather. Not, I don't think he's really got particularly high upside, but good size. He's a very good shooter at the G League level, terrible at the NBA level. 
And he's a lot like Mikhailuk in his mentality. He is certainly not at all lacking for confidence, and, and that's a good quality if you know if if you're actually good at your job, if you're good at shooting. I mean, with a guy like Musa, of course, if he goes on the floor in the NBA and is just chucking the ball, he's going to get yanked real quick. But he's you know ultimately people ask. I think I'm sure people wonder you know why was Brown traded away from Musa in the second round pick. You know, I I couldn't tell you exactly whether Musa or the second round pick was the bigger gets. Here's the thing with Brown. He was, even though he had made significant strides between his rookie and his sophomore years, he was still not a good NBA player on a on a good NBA team last year. He probably would not have seen many minutes, if any. Brown, sure, he's 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 a. I, I really like Brown. Just you know, as as a you know, as a player, not as a player, what do you want to say? I really like his, his mental outlook. He's a super hard worker, a guy who absolutely plays 100% and entirely for his team, you know, and, and it's, you know, I really like players like that. As far as his actual contribution once, the guy was a pretty good defender, but not an elite defender. He was a bad shooter, notwithstanding his improvement in three-point percentage. The guy could hit threes from the corners if he was left absolutely wide open, and he did so on low volume. Given the ball above the break, he was pretty hopeless. Uh, I think it was 22%. So that more or less made him a spacing liability immediately. He could handle the ball to a degree. He was a decent passer. Didn't have very good vision. And was terrible on the drive. Like, horrible on the drive. And just was, was, was very, very, very bad at scoring off the dribble. So you've got a guy who is, who is a decent defender, but he's an offensive liability. Uh, James Edwards said that he also did not have a very good mini camp. The Pistons had sort of a mini training camp in September. And I'm guessing that means that his offense hadn't improved. And when you've got a guy like that, Brown is 24. And has always had some issues on the offensive end of things. So I'm guessing Weaver just didn't really see much upside there and wanted the roster spot. So as far as Musa... Yeah, who knows? Could turn out to be valuable, could turn out not to be valuable. Just like with, with Servetus, if he can get that skill to shoot threes at high percentage on the move and from the spot up, then he'll have value in the NBA, whether that'll be at the Pistons or not as anybody's guess. I don't know where he'll find minutes this year, though. And finally, when it comes to uh, guaranteed standard contracts, uh, our last one is Wayne Ellington. Those of you who have been around for a couple years at least, or remember Wayne Ellington, he came to the Pistons as a uh, as a free agent, and he was bought out in uh, in twenty in the early stages of twenty nineteen, and the Pistons picked him up, and he ended up playing a pretty significant role for them down the stretch uh, as they motored toward that absolutely terrible series against the Bucks that that ultimately ended their season. So Ellington uh, was brought on on the veteran minimum for one year. He's a shooter and a locker room presence. Now, it should be noted the Pistons actually did lose quite a bit of shooting between last year and this year. So it's helpful by, you know, by by all accounts I've read, he was brought on, you know, his shooting was considered valuable, particularly next to Killian Hayes. And the Pistons did lose uh, Tony Snell, Luke Kennard. They lost Galloway. Those are three of their best three-point shooters last year. And, and so I, I believe, well, Talk about Galloway. Ellington effectively replaced Galloway. Uh, there was talk that, you know, prior to Weaver taking the reins, that Galloway might be kept around just because uh, the team, apparently the front office, really liked his professionalism and, and just thought he was a very, very steady veteran presence. And 
you know, he was actually for the first time in his career, which just sucks to say because he was a three point specialist. For the very first time in his career, he was actually a good three point shooter last year. So I was a little surprised to to see him replaced by Ellington. Ellington, who also is is very well thought of as a locker room presence, apparently just a super nice guy. So my only concern with Ellington is that he's actually going to get minutes in what's already a, a pretty crowded field where you've got it's just going to be tough to find minutes for all the young guys as it is and you know by all the young guys i'm only referring here to 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 seku to bay and, and to jackson of course the stewart is not going to really you know he's <laughs> he's not going to be playing on, on the wing but the number of minutes to go around you know it's it's going to be a fairly full rotation as i said that was an issue with the grand signing is that you're you're kicking in 32 minutes at that small power forward and power forward and so that, that's what I would estimate anyway, probably grant 32 to 34 minutes. So if Ellington gets minutes, then it, it's going to be taken away from one of the younger players. That, that could also be Svee. Uh, I don't know if Musa will even get a chance. I don't know if Servitas will get a chance or what will be done. But I, I think it's like, yay, you know, that maybe his shooting, if in, in the lieu of shooting from anybody else, then uh, it can help Hayes. But again, like Svee was one of the best shooters, you know, just in terms of pure three-point shooting, was one of the best shooters in the league last year. I'd like to see him get minutes at shooting guard. Jackson's got to find him somewhere. Whether or not he can shoot is anybody's guess. So, yeah, Ellington on paper, you know, yay, good locker room presence. If he's actually going to get more than, like, five or six minutes a game, <laughs> then I don't. And, and honestly, if, if you're going to play a guy that little, you just really usually don't play him at all. But if, if he's going to get significant minutes, I don't think that that would be the greatest idea. And and I think Casey is is very different to his veterans. If Ellington's there, he's probably gonna gonna get those minutes. So, all right, a couple more. Lewis King was brought back on on a two way contract. He had been the Pistons hadn't given a qualifying offer. He had, he had been on a two way contract. They hadn't given a qualifying offer, and then they just signed him to another two way contract. So, he's a a very raw wing with you know with good potential. I'm glad they're gonna keep him. And the other two-way contract slot will be taken up by uh, Seven Lee. So two guys with pretty good upside, I think. There were also some changes made uh, for the upcoming season as to how two-way contracts function. Prior to the upcoming season, it had been that players in two-way contracts could only spend 45 days with their NBA team. Those days would include practice and travel. And now it has been amended such that players on two-way deals can spend up to 50 games, or up to and including 50 games, with with their NBA teams. And, of course, two-way contracts can always be upgraded into standard NBA, NBA deals. I mean, I, I doubt that'll turn out to be a consideration for the Pistons this year. Uh, just, you know, it's always an option. So, the final name to speak on is LiAngelo Ball. Now, many of you know that LiAngelo has two brothers in the NBA. One is Lamelo, who was drafted number three overall to the Charlotte Hornets in the recent draft. He was pretty hyped, though. That was in part just because the, the 2020 NBA draft class was pretty weak, at least as, as far as high-caliber talent went, or at least looking into it, rather. You never know how these things will turn out. And the other is Lonzo Ball, who plays for the New Orleans Hornets, was drafted by the Los Angeles Lakers, number two in 2017. was also pretty hyped and has developed into an above-average starter. He'll never be a star, and he never really justified the hype, but he's a solid player. Now, LiAngelo, to put it simply, is just nowhere near as good at basketball as his brothers. He is not the scapegrace, never-do-well, shoplifting brother. Uh, some of you remember he, he got arrested in China for shoplifting a couple years ago. 
but yeah, he's not just that brother who just had issues with attitude and never got off the ground and is being given his chance. He just has nowhere near the amount of talent that his brothers have. That's why he wasn't drafted. And, and I, don't, I don't recall ever hearing that teams really even gave him any consideration to be drafted, even in the second round uh, when he went in, which I believe was in 2018. Uh, so why did the Pistons sign him? Um, I don't really know. Uh, it's, it's not a, I mean, it's not a big deal. He was on a, he was signed to a one-year fully non-guaranteed contract. And, and unless he has just made enormous, like enormous leaps in ability uh, over the last like eight or nine months, then I would say he'll be competing for a roster spot in name only. That is, he has virtually no chance of getting one. I've heard it said that the Pistons signed him primarily just to redirect him to the G League. And maybe that's the case, and maybe he's got something to offer that he hasn't shown yet. Uh, I, For my part, I, I don't even know if he has what it takes to succeed in the G League, because though the G League is an enormous step below the NBA, it is still a very competitive league. And is, is he good enough to succeed there? It's anybody's guess. Either way, it's, it's really a no-risk signing for the Pistons, but I, I wouldn't. I, I would caution against anybody hoping or or expecting that's, that Leangelo will suddenly find his talent and, and become anywhere near on the level of Lamelo, who we haven't seen, but uh, or Alonzo. I, I just I don't think he has that in him. And, you know, I, I think it's much was made out of a story that really didn't have much to it. So that'll be it for today's episode. As noted, we've got Pistons preseason kicking off on Friday the 11th against the Knicks. Definitely very excited for that one. As always, thank you all for listening. We'll see you next time.